0: Welcome to another episode of the How to Save the World podcast, where we take a deep dive into the academic research and behavioral science of what really gets people to take pro-environmental action and behavior. I'm your host, Katie Patrick. I'm an environmental engineer and a designer based in Silicon Valley, California, and I'm the author of the book, How to Save the World. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Marcus Brower. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Wisconsin and the executive director of the Institute for Diversity Science. And our topic today is what makes up real evidence-driven gamification. Now, games sound fun, but do they really work to get people to actually do climate and eco-friendly things? And if so, why do they work? Marcus is the social scientist behind a behavior change game called Cool Choices. It's a card game that gets workplace employees into groups with a goal to compete around energy and environmental behaviours. Marcus is one of the few people who has published academic research specifically on the game techniques designed for environmental behaviour. And this is important because a game that is designed for play and fun only and a game that is designed for action each have a very different purpose. And for those of us who are trying to make change and action happen, we do not want our games ending up like a kind of fun, creative project that we hope trickles into real-world CO2-reducing behaviours. But in reality, it falls down the dreaded value-action gap. If you have not heard of the dreaded value-action gap, Google it now. It is the enemy of all environmental progress, and most people fall down it most of the time. Marcus gives us an understanding on the theoretical underpinning and real causal mechanisms that drive the psychology behind the kind of gamification that does succeed in our quest for real and measurable change. Our conversation today explores his paper published in the Journal of Environmental Psychology titled, Making Cool Choices for Sustainability, Testing the Effectiveness of a Game-Based Approach to Promoting Pro-Environmental Behaviours. Marcus is a true wealth of knowledge in this subject, and I was so impressed by his robust and succinct explanations of behavior design and gamification that I kept him on the line an extra 30 minutes and have split this interview into two parts. This is part one. Make sure you tune in next Monday for part two. As an environmental gamification designer myself, this has definitely been one of my favorite interviews so far, and it really helped clarify my own understanding of how to get better at evidence-based gamification design. So get out a pen and paper because there is a lot to learn in the next hour. Oh my God, we are so lucky to get access to this oh-so-useful knowledge. And if you are enjoying the podcast, but you have not yet hit the follow or subscribe button on Spotify or Apple, please do that now so you'll get notified of new episodes and, of course, of part two of our conversation. The How to Save the World podcast comes out every Monday, so you can start your week with some inspiring and sometimes deeply nerdy environmental action design tips. Now, let's jump into part one of our episode with our fabulous psychology expert of the month, Dr. Marcus. Brower, Welcome to the show, Marcus. I am delighted to dive into the theory of gamification with you today.
1: Thanks for having me, Katie.
0: Now, let's just dive straight in. Does gamification work to drive pro-environmental behavior?
1: Yes, it works. And the reason it works, because it appeals to fundamental psychological processes involved in behavior change. There are a number of them. There's a long list and we can go through this list. But let me just highlight one. People love games. They are reactant when somebody tries to influence their behavior. We want to keep our individual freedom, liberty. And when somebody else tells us what to do, there's a high risk of reactants, uh, us not doing what we're asked to do. But everything changes in a game. In a game, people get caught in, a little bit of competition, but we will see later maybe not too much competition, just if there are rewards, prizes. Actually, they can't be too attractive. If not, people get too competitive. There's too much external justification for behavior change. We want sort of minimal justification. Oh, here's a prize and you, you got first place. And then people compete for that. But actually, if the prize is too high, if it's several thousand dollars, then actually there is no behavior change. And as soon as you take the carrot away, people revert to the previous behavior. Games is great when it involves other people. We compare ourselves, so we compare notes. Like in in the study that you mentioned, we formed teams. Teams were playing against each other. And suddenly people were working together on a common goal. Oh, we have to score more points than the other team. But that suddenly then gave people the freedom to talk to each other within their team. They said, oh, and Carla is not pulling her weight here. She's not scoring any points on on our game here. And that actually allowed them to sort of mention to Carla, hey, is is, is there something you can do? Is there something we can help you with? So whereas before there's that everybody does what they want to do, and I'm overstepping my boundaries, if I talk to them about their own behavior, suddenly in the context of a game, these things become permitted. So what we have is social normative influence, a little bit of competition, several other processes, low reactance, and that all is a great mix for behavior change.
0: There's so much in that to dive into, and I've got so many notes and questions that we can start unwrap that. But before we sort of really dive into the detail... Can I just take an umbrella view and ask you, why do people whose job it is to reach sustainability goals and solve climate change, there are thousands of us around the world, this is our full-time job, but yet we often don't know that much about behavioral science. And often people have never even heard of it. They've never heard of environmental psychology. It's very little known in the real environmental profession. Why is this a problem?
1: It's a mystery to me too, and I don't have an answer for you. Many of these people come from the engineering world. They're very knowledgeable about technological changes, how to increase gas mileage of cars or et cetera, or they come from the policy world, but they actually know relatively little about behavior change. And what is fascinating to me as a behavioral scientist, I would say that in most times, there are a number of myths that are out there and they're entirely incorrect about behavior change. And and I think, let me just bring up two right away. One myth is technology is going to fix it. Like with technological advance, if we create fridges that consume less electricity, if we have um, washing machines that consume less electricity and less water, cars that drive more with increased mileage, that will fix our climate-related problems. Entirely wrong, and I can talk about that. The second myth is that, oh, if we provide people with uh, information, if we raise awareness about a particular issue, they're going to change their behavior. And we now know from hundreds of empirical studies that that is simply incorrect. Providing information and raising awareness is in most cases not enough to change people's behaviors. So I'm fascinated by how millions of dollars are spent on programs where I could look at the program and I could make the prediction right away that that is going to be ineffective.
0: Yeah. Like I, you just said it so succinctly and that's been my experience too. I studied environmental engineering. I'm one of those like environmental, technically trained people. And I was like deep in it, really, really in it, right? Even when I was a teenager, it was my degree. It was my first job as a green building engineer. And so it wasn't till like over 10 years in my professional career that I had even heard of behavioral science or environmental psychology. So this was like a while ago, going back in in history a little bit, but it wasn't like no one had heard of it. It's just it was not in the training. It wasn't in the education. There were no conferences about it. People weren't talking about it. I really had to go far out of what I was doing to discover it. And I don't think it's really changed that much. It's changed a little bit since then like in the last 10 years but it is kind of crazy so that's why we have this that's why I have this podcast so I could help share this knowledge kind of like unwrap all this knowledge that you and other people have to try and like share it with my people but I want to dive into exactly what gamification is like the actual techniques because I've been doing like gamification design for a few years now and I've over the years have clarified kind of like exactly what it is and it's a little bit different to Game design, because there are people who work as game designers and they build these like big digital worlds for like Sony PlayStations and stuff. And it's not necessarily that. If you could make like a list or a definition of what gamification is and these exact features, what would you put in that list? And how would you describe it?
1: Yeah. I think we have this list in our 2017 article. I hope I, I remember I actually everything.
0: have it if you don't remember them all, so I can prompt you.
1: Please go ahead and want to. I prompt
0: you, and then you can explain them in your own words so Love it. you remember them all. Okay, we'll start off with an overall de- definition of um, gamification, and then sure. I'll remind you with each one, and you can explain in your own words.
1: Yes. It often evolves some amount of competition. People compete for something, prizes, awards, points, etc. So th- that is an important aspect. Then what the other thing that we have is usually there is a, an, a setup where people come compare each other and that social comparison is incredibly important. So there might be something like a leaderboard that is available where people can see each other and then subsequently change their uh, behavior if they want to. Another important part that we as behavioral scientists care about is the social diffusion aspect. It is very interesting how influenced we humans are by what other people do. And we wanna fit in and we don't wanna be too different from other people. And and therefore we often look left and right to to figure out what are the appropriate behaviors, what should I be doing here in, in, in this situation? And, and one of the goals of gamification is very often that social comparison, social diffusion aspect. So I see what other people are doing, and therefore I will change my behavior. So one of the elements of the game that we developed is, first of all, the team. So you could discuss with other people, oh, what are you doing? Oh, you're doing this. Oh, you got rid of your second fridge, or you put in different types of light bulbs or low-flow shower heads, whatever. But then We also had a mechanism where people could post pictures of themselves doing certain pro-environmental behaviors, because one of the key things, and and that's a problem, a difference compared to other types of behaviors, I don't know, health behaviors or other types of behaviors, most pro-environmental behaviors are private. They occur in the privacy of one's home, and most neighbors don't see what other people are doing. So one way we thought very hard about how we can get people to make these behaviors visible so that other people are influenced by them. Oh, that other person, or maybe that other person or the other team did this behavior. Maybe that's something that we should be doing as well. So that's another aspect, that social diffusion, social comparison aspect. We wanted to add, I don't know if it's part of the definition, we wanted to add concrete information What that means is very often sustainability initiatives, they provide people with 60 types of behaviors that they can do. It's a little overwhelming. You don't know which of these behaviors are the most impactful, which ones are the lowest hanging fruit for for you. So we gave people very concrete information during our game. And finally, what is uh, interesting for us um, are two other aspects. One is habit formation. The game has to be long enough for people to change their habits. Some games are 15 minutes, that's probably too short. Some interventions like for public transportation use are are two weeks, people get uh, free uh, bus passes for two weeks. We would argue that that is too short. One of the key elements is habit formation. How do we get people to to change their habits? And the very last one is choice. People wanna have choice. They wanna um, have a feeling of autonomy. If there is too much pressure, of doing something, then people are not going to do it. People have to have the opportunity to be able to choose. And I think a game is particularly a a fruitful avenue for doing that. So even an incentive programs can sometimes feel constraining. So I'm basically people buy me to do a particular behavior. But in the context of a game, you can choose different option. You can choose to participate in the game. You can choose what actions in the game you take. And then finally, when you ask the people, well, why are you actually doing this? And, and then there's a prize that's relatively small. So the reward is, is relatively small. OK, it's for the prize. But then when they think about it, I'm really doing this because I care about the environment. And that is a very important part is that internal attribution. I'm not doing it for a financial incentive. I'm not doing this for a highly attractive prize, probably because the, the, the prizes so are so low. Probably, I'm doing this because I care about the environment. That's why games are so powerful. So these are the elements that I would that come to mind spontaneously. are there are there any that I forgot, Katie?
0: yeah, I'll, I, I've got nine of them. I'll just jump through and double check. But I think the way you the way you just described it in terms of breaking down or kind of d- diffusing that intrinsic versus like extrinsic definition was kind of really cool because, A lot of people don't really feel that comfortable with the idea that all motivations are either extrinsic or intrinsic. And if you gamify something, gamification is an extrinsic reward. If I get a digital strawberry with a smiley face on it after I do something, that's extrinsic. So we shouldn't do that. But what you're kind of saying is that these small little rewards that we can get through gamification actually are leveraging the intrinsic reward. It's actually kind of part of it. And that feels a much more intuitively genuine, I feel like, way to describe it rather than, oh, it has to be just like only intrinsic and only through like your spiritual connection with nature. And if anyone gets a smiley face or a social comparison, then it's kind of like in the bad form of like motivation.
1: I agree. Did it, Did I forget anyone or do you have yeah, other thoughts? Yeah, okay. Let's,
0: let, let's jump in. So, okay. This is copied directly from your report. Number one is clear Progression paths. Can you, in a nutshell, explain like an example of what this kind of like tracking progress towards a goal thing is? In that?
1: Well, we use that in the game. People were able to, so it's a game that's played in companies. So at at people's workplaces, Uh, people form teams and then they can self report a a certain number of environmental actions and they get points for that. And uh, these environmental actions become available uh, progressively. These are like playing cards and um, you get dealt certain cards and then you can engage. You can play them by engaging in the uh, corresponding and pro-environmental behavior. One card would be, I used alternatives, means of transportation to come to work all week. Or I installed a low-flow shower head at home. Or I turned off the lights when I left my workplace or a room in the office space. So you and then by doing these behaviors, you get points. So one of the key aspects was you get different amounts of points for different types of behaviors because certain of these behaviors have bigger impact than others. For instance, one of the bigger ones, and even I didn't know that, is that second fridge in the basement is probably one of the highest energy consumers in in anybody's household. And getting rid of that second fridge is, or, or unplugging it at least for most of the year, is a very crucial action that has a lot of impact on energy consumption. And talk in terms of clear path forward, what that shows you is, okay, what do I have to do? How much points do I get? Which of these behaviors has a lot of impact? Which of these behaviors does not, has a small impact? How can I do that? How can I overcome the obstacles and barriers? And then can I get used to it? Again, we're habit formation. And then over the period of the game, People can even exchange how the obstacles, wow, I installed that, I don't know, I mean, I can't think of. Yeah, how do you insulate your attic? Do you know a company that can do that? So there's a people in the goal of they exchange with others, both teammates, but then they're not. The teams, they don't hate each other. Sometimes they would walk over to another person from another team and they would say, okay, I, I saw that you claimed that big card for insulating your attic, you got 200 points for that. Give me the company because I'm not going to go ahead and, and insulate my attic as well. So if there there's a clear path forward in terms of what do I need to do, in this case, to accumulate points, but then points translates directly into trees saved, carbon reduced.
0: Yeah, I think that's just like such a critical thing to really get with this stuff, because I found more and more, the more consulting and design I've done in this space, the more I'm just keep hammering the point tracking progress towards a goal. I'm like, you guys have got to be tracking progress towards a goal. You need a beginning, you need an end, you need to be tracking it. You need to figure out what you're measuring. And it's amazing how this is just not done or it's done like very flimsy once a year way in the back of the organization. I'm like, just put it front and center. And then constantly check, are you, is everybody progressing like towards this goal? But anyway, that's the first and second one. Clear progression paths with an achievable goal, actually having a goal at all, like for people to do that they actually can do. Okay. Third step is levels. How might we understand or design levels into our behavior change system?
1: Every computer game that my sons play has levels. (laughs) And then they exchange, okay, I'm on level seven. Now oh, you're only in level four. And that is incredibly motivated. Oh, I'm now on level seven. That gives you a certain social status. We're back to social comparison, right? Oh, he's on level seven. I'm on level four, etc. And the same is true with these types of environmental games. So maybe we want to start out with the low-hanging fruit, the behaviors that are easy to do, that are not very costly. Once we've done those, Okay, maybe the person is ready to step it up and to become a a pro. And some of these behaviors are a little more labor intensive or a little more inconvenient or require a bigger change in a person's habits or a person's lifestyle. So again, if you start out too big, it can be uh, discouraging. People can say, "Ah, I can never do that. I mean, that's, that's too much. So we have something that we call like engagement theory of engagement. We usually start out small
0: Wait, In wait, theory, sorry,
1: theory, theory of, engagement. of
0: engagement. Okay, because engage. we're remember, we're all beginners here, all us environmental yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. scientists. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for um, okay. stopping me
1: every time I use a technical <laughs> term, uh, engagement. It has to do, you, you start small, hopefully, and then you do certain types of behavior that are not very costly. Hopefully, there is not too much extrinsic reason why you did these. Then you reflect on your own behaviors. Why did I do this? Then you start attributing to yourself that you're the kind of person who cares about the environment. You're the kind of person who cares about future generations. Once you have made that internal attribution, you're going to move on and you're ready to even engage in more costly behavior. Once you have engaged in these more costly behavior, again, you're going to think about yourself, again, stronger identification with that kind of person. Oh, I'm a pro-environmentalist. I care about the environment and et cetera. So what we are usually trying through a series of what we call preparatory actions or, or low-cost behaviors, we're trying to get people to build up progressively to then more costly behaviors. And the same is done in, in, in health behaviors, by the way, because this is an effective way to change people's behaviors. So this is where the levels come in. If, if you start with level eight, oh, this is too difficult, this is too hard for me. I mean, somebody who has never gone for a run you're not going to start out with having them do a 45 minute run. And that is uh, exactly what's going on. So that level, I think, and then you have a level of the sense of achievement. Oh, I've now achieved level one. So you have that feeling of success of having done it. And that then motivates you to try something more difficult. I think that progressive move towards more costly behaviors is actually crucial. And I think in many behavior change campaigns, that is poorly handled because the request is to get people to perform these costly behaviors right away. And then either they don't do it or they do it for three days and then they stop right away.
0: Honestly, I just think this level thing is, I just think it's probably, if there's one thing that like people listening can really get is to just realize that we need to break this stuff up into these like sort of s- sequences of steps for people, because it happens all the time. People are like, here's 500 million things that you can do to save the planet, right from do a PhD to become like president of the United States to like switching like a light Andrew. bulb off to composting a banana peel. And it's just this kind of like crazy amount of stuff. And even if you are really motivated, it is kind of like hard to figure out how to get through it all or figure out which thing to do first. So kind of figuring out the kind of architecture of how you want to bring people on to the levels. But just so I understand this theory of engagement, it kind of sounds like in game design or in like UI UX design, we call it like onboarding. Like you'll give people in a game like a super easy level that's almost so easy. It's not even meant to be a level. It's like you come on, You do something super simple, then you get like some sort of reward mechanism and then you kind of get into the habit of it. That's the kind of onboarding level in like in game design. But the way you explained it, it's that when you get practice at the easy level, let's say you're on, it's a 10 level thing, you're on level one, you get a bit of practice. What you, what it does is it enhances your environmental identity. So you've made it through level one. You're like, I recycled, I composted, I rode a bike. All of the really hardcore environmentalists will be like, you're not doing anything. It's not enough. But you've got somebody, they've made it to level one, they've practiced a few things. Then what happens is their environmental identity gets enhanced. They start to embody these behaviors as who they are, as their value system. They get the hang of them and then they become more receptive to the level 2 behaviors and then the level 3 behaviors and if they keep going on then they might be ready to take on something complex like joining a political campaign or getting like an ev or changing careers or something like big like that i've started making these little 1 minute reels like sharing little environmental psychology tips on instagram because people ask about this a lot like this relationship between individual change and like systems change and i was and i put these boxes up on the the desk. And I said, don't think about it as these small individual changes, as taking away from the big systems level changes. See it like a staircase. See it like levels, like colors of karate belts. You start on one level of the staircase and then you go up, 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 up. So I feel like when we're saying levels, it might sound like something cute. Oh yeah, like Super Mario Brothers have levels. We have levels, but I feel like it's such a big thing. Like it's right to the heart of how to get people onto the big, like, sort of tipping point of change? Just pretend there's an exclamation mark, after, not an exclamation, a question mark after that asking you a question.
1: Okay. No, I think you're entirely right. There's a very famous study and that that actually highlights the psychological mechanism. So these researchers, it was done a while ago, more than 40 years ago. So these researchers approached house homeowners along a highway and there were two experimental conditions. In one experimental conditions, they walked up to them and say, would you be willing to put up a sign nine by 12 feet or whatever on road safety here in your front yard, visible from the highway? It's a big sign. It's on, on post and whatever. Yeah, it's nine by 12. Whatever. It's, would you be willing to do that? Very low acceptance rate. I think 17%, whatever. That was one experimental condition. And randomly, half of the homeowners were assigned to the second experimental condition. Here, the procedure was different. They were approached by the researcher at some point, and they were asked to put a sticker in their window that was four by four inches and that promoted road safety. Would you be willing to do that, to put that sticker right in the window here next to the entrance door where people can see it when they come to your house? Yep, sure. I can do that. Most people accepted uh, that request. Put the sticker in their window. Four weeks later, the researcher comes and says, "Okay, thank you very much we're actually trying to put up big signs, nine by 12. Would you be willing to accept to be to put a big sign in your yard right where it's visible from the highway, nine by 12 feet? Acceptance rate, 65%. We're talking about a difference between 17% and 65%. And what is the difference? One group did what we refer to as a preparatory action. They started out small. They put that sticker in the window. There was no reason if they had been paid $400 to do that, it would have been different. There was no external reason why they did that. They accepted, okay, I put the sticker there. And then having that sticker without any real reason to have that sticker there changed their perception of themselves. Who am I? Well, I'm probably somebody who cares about road safety. What other reason is there for me to put that sticker up there? And I'm looking at it every day. And every guest every uh, who co- stops by, the mail person, sees that sticker. But now they think that I'm somebody who cares about road safety. So of course, when somebody comes along and asks me if I'm willing, if if they can put up a sign nine by 12 feet, I have to think what kind of person I am. And well, I guess I'm somebody who cares about road safety. Okay, why don't you go ahead and put up that sign? So that is a difference. Again, I think it feeds directly into your levels, uh, what you said about levels before. We don't want to start big. We want to start small. We want to change people's perceptions of themselves. We want to change people's identity. And if we then build up progressively with levels, we can actually to do get them to do costly behaviors.
0: And that's called foot-in-the-door technique, isn't it? With that example that's with exactly the sign? Yeah.
1: That's exactly it. And there are researchers who have devoted their entire research career of how to create these preparatory actions so that they're most effective. Because you want preparatory actions that most people accept. So you want the acceptance rate, the preparatory action to be like 95%. If that preparatory action is already too expensive, too costly, only a minority of people will actually accept to do it. So it has to be a low-cost behavior that the vast majority of people accept, putting a sticker, wearing a button, putting up a sign in the yard, whatever. It has to be a low-cost, signing a petition, posting something on social media. All all of these are low-cost behaviors. And then progressively, you build up. It's called the spiral of engagement. You start small, you commit it, and then you spiral yourself into the person who is really committed to protecting the environment.
0: Oh my God, I think I've got to get you on some consulting on some of these these campaigns. The spiral of yeah, of engagement. it really it makes me think that if you are trying to like get people to adopt a change, you should instantly think about it in terms of this spiral, this like the first thing, like the second thing, the third thing. Ultimately, you want people to do, say the third thing. You want to like have these little like in between levels. Say if you want to get like a government to pass some like really significant yep. law to do something like put in more bike paths. It's quite expensive for them to do, change a freeway, bring in a carbon tax. If you can just think like, well, this is our goal, but we're just going to work on these two little like mini goals to just prepare them, then w- we'll get there. And often people don't want to focus on. I mean, not people like the people we're trying to influence, but I mean us, the environmentalists. I feel like. We want to like just really get people to do the big stuff because it's more rewarding for us to be like do big crazy things than it is to like just ask people to wear a button. That's not that exciting for us. But if we think about it in terms of everything needs this kind of undercoat before we get there, I think that just like really makes sense. And it made me think of this in California recently we brought in a new pricing for the electricity. So between four and 9pm, it goes up by two cents a kilowatt. And at the time I was working on this, this app called Energy Lollipop, which shows the carbon intensity of the grid. And there's this big spike and the utilities were saying, oh, we're going to change the pricing. And I was all excited because I thought, oh, wow, like it's going gonna, to gonna kind of reflect the carbon intensity. And then it came out and it was only like two cents compared to like 28 cents. It was only like what it was like a 5% increase. And I was like, what the fuck? Oh my God. I was so upset. I was just like, Oh my God, nobody's going to be motivated to change this because of this like tiny price increase. And it took so long. And this is so painfully pathetic. But like I had to kind of remind myself, well, you got to kind of start with the small thing. They've got to get used to the tiny bit. And then hopefully they'll be able to go up a couple of layers to like to the next level.
1: Sometimes people are influenced by small incentives, though, just because it's relative, oh, this is cheaper than that. Let me go with a cheaper option, even though if reasonably speaking, the savings are so incredibly minimal. We sometimes see that with students if we want them to complete, I don't know, a climate survey. We may add, oh, you can get one extra credit point on your homework assignments, but if you then consider how the homework assignments are scored, that actually is that completing the survey and the one extra point constitutes like one three hundredth of the total grade. And it's actually not worth it to to do that. But then they do it anyway, because why not take that extra credit point? It's three minutes of work to complete the survey. I, I, I might as well do it. So sometimes people are surprisingly influenced by small incentives. That actually gets me to incentives at all. So that is yet another research area and there are people who have studied that. Do financial incentives work or how do we use financial incentives appropriately? Well, I mean, for two comments. Financial incentives work. People are sensitive to money. I mean, let's face it. The problem is very often when you then stop the financial incentive, people revert back right to the behavior they had before the incentive started. And there we now have uh, discovered as psychologists, a certain number of mechanisms, certain things that have to happen during the incentive phase that make it more likely that people continue with the behavior, even when the financial incentives uh, stop. One of the things I could tell you right away, I mean, the higher the financial incentives, the more likely people are going to stop doing the behavior when the financial incentives stop. So one of thing is it it can't be too high. You mentioned incentives that are too low, and I agree with you, but incentives that are too high are also not effective in the sense that they they do not lead to behavior change. One of the things, and let's young people nowadays, I mean, everybody cares about money, but I think young people nowadays are driven... More and more about other things as well. If you look at what kind of jobs they apply for, what kind of companies they work for, I think young people nowadays, they want to make a difference. They want to work for the right company that has the right ethic, that has corporate social responsibility, that doesn't employ subcontractors who do child labor in, in, in Far East Asian countries, that have labels fsc label for sustainable forestry sustainable paper products sustainable cardboard wood products etc they want to work for companies that have a commitment to equity and including gender equality female managers etc and uh, they want to work for companies that do the right thing and i think that translates into behaviors sure financial incentives work and they also work for young people but nowadays, and I think it's a little too simplistic that that is our only lever, to think that this is our only lever through which we will influence behaviors. There are many other psychological factors. What kind of person am I? What kind of group do I belong to? How do I want to be seen by my peers? Nowadays, you buy a Tesla, that's a statement, but that Tesla is also visible by your neighbors, right? So you buy a Tesla, sure, because you care about the environment, but you also make a statement to your friends, to your neighbors, et cetera. And I think nowadays, I think it's a little simplistic, just as it is simplistic to think, oh, all we need to do is provide information and raise awareness and people are going to change their behavior. We know that that's not going to happen. It's equally simplistic to say, oh, all we have to do is change the incentive structure and then people will change their behaviors and then there's a habit and then we can stop the incentives. And then people will persist with their own behavior. I think that is a simplistic, outdated approach to behavior change. And I think if we really want to make a difference, we have to use different approaches, modern behavior change approaches that come right out of the behavioral sciences in empirical research.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the biases that exist currently in our industry is that if we give people more knowledge and more education, they'll do stuff. And if we just make it are more financially viable, not unimportant, but it's not the whole picture, that these are the kind of, we think these are only two levers to the human brain, but there's so many more levers. Just on your hunch, if we had all the levers in front of us and we had money and knowledge as two levers, how many more levers would there be that we're not seeing? <laughs> uh, just approximate 10, 20, 20 you're 500. Just...
1: You're actually describing a study that I've wanted to do and I've never had the time to do it. I wanted to, to to select 10, 20 small communities. And in my case, it would be Wisconsin. And I wanted to randomly assign the half of them to the control condition and then half of them to the treatment condition, the intervention condition. And I wanted to throw in their intervention condition at people everything we know about behavior change from gamification to engagement, to a commitment uh, strategies, to social norms, to social diffusion, et cetera. And my goal was to show that we, we can get people to reduce their energy consumption by 50% um, if, if we use the right uh, method. I've never had the time to do the study, but I think we're vastly underusing the rich repertoire of behavioral tools that we have at our dip- disposal nowadays.
0: But how many? How if you were to say how many more tools in front of me? Because I know I've collected a whole bunch that I use. What's your hunch of if you had them all out? So late the question in front of you?
1: is, it's incentives and information are two of these are tools. two of and these how,
0: tools? How many extra are there that oh, are I kind of invisible? I would say at
1: least another eighteen. 18 makes yeah. it up to twenty. Yeah,
0: I have them all. The ones I know about mapped out in this behavior mapping process that that I use. There's, I've got actually ninety six steps in this behavior mapping process, but they're not all. I would say behavior change tools. Some of them are like more marketing and they're more just styles of, say, there's rewards, but then there's 20 different sort of types of rewards. Yeah, but I'd say I've got probably 20 to 30 different mechanisms just to check through to make sure are you using it. And the reason why there's so many is that, yeah, there's like different ways of doing like the same thing. Like comparison can be done in five different ways. So I have five different techniques for that. But yeah, there's like 30. And when I do like consulting, I'm checking through every single one. I'm like, what are we doing for commitment and pledges? What are we doing for comparison? What are we doing for rewards? Okay, there's all these different types of rewards. Which ones? What are we doing for feedback? What are we doing for novelty? And it's just like, boom, 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 like going through them all. In terms of like knowledge and money, I don't even have knowledge and money on there because I just kind of am circumventing that whole, that system and trying to do the stuff that's not being done. Yeah,
1: you have, that's cool. Do I you like have it's cool. Like, do, do you have social norms on your list of mechanisms? Of course.
0: Oh, my God. It's like, the, yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah, I have social norms, written social norms, and like a picture of social norms. So make sure people have written it in a sentence. But I actually did another a podcast with an, a woman who specializes in social norms. And just, I don't know if you know this, but I thought it was super interesting that if you say the social norm as a whole number, like four out of five people is more effective than if you say 80%. So I learned this little trick. So have you heard of that before?
1: Yeah. I have and there are other minor things. Join in, join us. It seems to be important. Uh, you could enhance the effect by it's an increasing number. If you say four out of five, if you can, depending on how much space you have in a tweet, maybe not. But if you have a, a different type of communication, you could say it used to be three out of five. Now it's four out of five. Ooh, things are changing.
0: You yeah. you better jump
1: on the bandwagon. I mean, bandwagon is leaving. You better become part of that increasing number of people who do X also works. And that's called the
0: dynamic norm. Is that right?
1: It's called dynamic Dynamic norms.
0: Yeah. I had another interview about dynamic norms, which was really cool to learn about. It's all these little things that people just don't know. And they're so easy to do. They're like, if everyone just knew them, we could probably all be like 10% more effective just by the way we change a sentence, which Mm -hmm. I think is just crazy, amazing and crazy. Okay. Moving through our list, which is now becoming a very comprehensive lesson in effective behavior gamification design. Okay, we've got rewards. You mentioned this really interesting thing about you don't want the reward to be so big. You want a reward in the gamification process. They have a goal, they move towards the goal, they move through levels. Each level can have a reward. There's got to be some type of reward there. So firstly, like, what is a reward and what could it be? But you also mentioned if like the reward is too big, it cannibalizes the intrinsic motivation and makes the person not as interested in it long-term, which is really interesting. So is your perspective also that we need to make the reward small and so the person is really engaged in the playing experience and not make it all weighted around the reward?
1: Yeah, I'll give you an example from my uh, experience as an instructor. I often use group work in the class and that is great, very effective teaching methods, but I've tried out different things. So sometimes I have put group in competition and, and there was no reward wasn't enough. They didn't increase their efforts just being, okay. this group had the best outcome or did the best work. That was not enough. Then I also gave bigger rewards. I said, okay, the group with the best product, they get 10 extra credits on their grade. That's a lot. That didn't work at all. People got super competitive, obsessed with the point, with the reward, negative ambiance, and they started disliking other students who oh, were... Wow, in, I
0: created bad in, vibes.
1: And it they'll oh, create a terrible, complete oh, failure, a uh, terrible classroom climate, people were competitive. And because it was all focused on the reward, I think I, I decreased their intrinsic motivation. I mean, I never did the research, but my guess is mm-hmm. they were less likely to sign up for a class on a similar topic after my class because the reward was so big and they were only focused. And if there's no reward, why would I study this particular topic? So what I then learned is, I'll tell you the truth, I, I bring in tiny rewards, They're a Kit Kat, a Mars uh, bar, and everybody in the group that wins the competition gets a Mars, it's minimal. I mean, everybody can afford a Kit Kat, and yet there is a reward. And with gamification, I mean, it's absolutely crazy. You put people in groups and you put the groups in competition, You don't need a high reward for people to get caught in the game and say, oh, we need to win this and we need to get there. So, yes, if if the reward is too big, if the financial incentive is too big, it is actually counterproductive. It cannot be too attractive. That's so fascinating.
0: uh, It blows my mind. It actually makes me think of it's kind of like a microcosm of what happened in Silicon Valley. I've lived here for 10 years watching this startup thing. And then the money just got so big. People were getting like raising $5, $10 million. I've even got a, a friend, not like a close friend, but who raised $200 million and then went to a, did an IPO. So there's just this, this crazy money and so many people moving here and working on their startups. And it started to get like that, like super competitive, people getting really burned out, having nervous breakdowns, not very nice. Like it wasn't very, the kind of friendly openness started to go away. But it, yeah, like that's crazy. So we w- we want to have some reward. We don't want to have it rewardless. We don't want to have a big reward because that m- drives it, a- makes everybody crazy and cannibalizes all the positive energy. But we want to have very small rewards that are almost like, they're almost like symbolic of winning rather than valuable in themselves.
1: Exactly. And the same is true for the preparatory actions that we talked about before, right? We want there to be as little external justification for people doing them. So if I ask people to complete a short three-minute survey, that is a great preparatory action because then afterwards they ask themselves, why did I do that survey? Well, probably because I care about the environment. If I now ask people to complete a three-minute survey and I give them $10 for doing that, well, it's not working at all. Then they're asking themselves, why did I just complete the survey? Well, because I got $10. So it it works for a variety of settings where actually the ideal reward is one of that's of intermediate size.
0: And if you use money for that reward, it can cannibalize the whole thing. That right. You might be better off using like a candy bar or a plant or a digital strawberry or something.
1: Another way to handle this, and I'm involved in a research project, it has to do with payment for ecosystem programs. It's These are huge programs in developing countries where small uh, landowners are paid to protect forests and to adopt uh, Milpa agriculture. So they're paid by the government for a five-year period to engage in forest conservation and Milpa um, mixed agriculture a tree and bushes and, and, and plants. And one of the most important insights is that most of the time after five years, these landholders revert back to initial practices right away within six months after the five year period. So the big question is, what can we do? Is there anything we can do? I mean, we can't keep paying them forever. No government in a developing country has the money to do that. We can't, what do we have to do during these five years so that once the payments stop, they continue with these desirable forest conservation behaviors. And it's an interesting program. We just have to do more. We have to work on the identity. We have to work on social norms. We have to work on habit formation. We have to work on social groups or social connectedness, et cetera. So we have to think the entire time about that intrinsic motivation, which has to replace the extrinsic motivation. The payment is the extrinsic motivation. When that goes away, it has to be replaced. by. At that point, there has to be sufficient intrinsic motivation for them to do that behavior. And there are a variety of ways to do that. Again, behavioral scientists have the tools to, to create that. So one of the things to do that is to actually decrease the payments progressively. Instead of paying them five years and then stopping rapidly is you pay them for three years. And then every year after that, you reduce the payment by 20%. So it's 80, 60, 40, etc. The amount spent on these landholders is the same. Given that you progressively take away the extrinsic motivation, it's progressively being replaced by the intrinsic motivation. So if it switches from 100 to 80%, Okay, it's less money from the government, but yeah, I'm still and my neighbors to do it, et cetera. Okay, I'm gonna keep doing it. And then two years later, oh, a year later, oh, for now it's from eighty to sixty. Yeah, yeah, okay, it's not that much of a change. Okay, it's less money, but et cetera. So progressively they change their identity. They see themselves as people who care about forest conservation. Social norms again kick in, traditional values, we this is who we are, Maya, culture, et cetera. We care about the environment, the medio ambiente and whatever, and then we progressively change their self-view over a time period. So financial incentives, again, can work if they're used correctly, if there's sufficient scaffolding in order to, to change people's views of themselves, their identity, their social identity, their intrinsic motivation. They can work, but they have to be implemented right.
0: Yeah, and that example really just dives into the nuance that there is in these, that these aren't really sort of like black and white rules that you should use money or you shouldn't use money, that you're really kind of blending all these techniques together. Have you? How long have you worked on that? Have you been on it long enough to see examples of it starting to work or yeah. not work?
1: Yeah, I think we, we're progressively making progress instead of, for instance, one of this is the social dimension is interesting. You give these landholders money to do this and um, it's not working at least they don't continue to do this to do these practices after the payments end you create community groups with technicians that help them and you have one weekly meeting where they all get together and discuss and compare what do you do for the weeds have you gone out when it was so hot last week etc suddenly you have social connectedness you have social comparison you have mutual stimulation. If you now back out, you are the only one out of the group who is going to drop the program. You're not going to do that. You're not going to let the other ones down. You're not going to be the only one who's different. So suddenly you have that whole social dimension and, and, and putting in the social dimension, having these community of, of landholders who get together for a week with advice from a technician and a facilitator, for instance, changes changes everything. And then, if you encourage them to actually what we call habit formation, that also makes a difference. If they, if if that forest conservation becomes a habitual activity that they do on a regular basis, then that's just their routine. It's a routine, and then they continue doing it when the payments end.
0: And it made me think, what would the equivalent of like a Kit cat be for that scenario? Which I don't mean to sound like I'm decreasing the sort of gravity of what they do, but. Like money is kind of like, you know, when you get like a gift card from one of your relatives, like for Christmas, it's like not a very meaningful gift. I was wondering if you could give them like supplies or like a hamper, like tools. Like if they got like a hamper once a year that had a couple of power tools that could be really useful, supplies, food, like a solar panel, like a battery backup, say like a thousand dollars worth of really meaningful stuff that you can use on a farm. That could be like amazing. It's like a gift of all this stuff which could be far more um impactful in creating that encouraging that intrinsic motivation than a $1000 worth of cash or they could alternate what you say year in sort of year out sure.
1: no i agree with you and what really works if both the rewards and and as, as the whole structure is done for the entire group so I'm, we're coming back to the game that we had before The reward was based on the performance of the entire group. Now, imagine the tool that you just mentioned. That's given to the entire community of landholders who are part of the program. It's one tool and they get it. But what that means, if you drop out, your behavior has consequences for the other members of the group. And you don't want to do that. You don't want to let them down. So you have basically that pressure. People think at different times of dropping out. But when I think about it, then everybody else staying in, so I stay in. And then maybe a month later, my neighbor thinks about dropping out, but then everybody else is staying in the program, so they decide to stay in the program as well. So if there's, if you can somehow create that social, these social ties where an individual behavior reverting back to the initial behavior actually has negative consequences on the group that they care about, well, they're less likely to revert back to that initial behavior.
0: What another fabulous environmental psychology, gamification, behavior, action design episode. This was so cool. Now, remember, as I mentioned in the intro, that this is part one of my conversation with Dr. Marcus Brower. Make sure you tune in next Monday for part two, where we go into a whole lot of other techniques and theories. And we also explore Marcus's role as the executive director of the Institute for Diversity Science, It's not the main topic of this episode today, but it is a fascinating topic and we get to get into that a little bit in episode number two. Thank you so much for listening and subscribing to the How to Save the World podcast. If you want to take a deep dive into the type of environmental gamification, behavior design that I teach, I urge you to sign up to my Gamify the Planet masterclass. I have seven courses in there now. And the one that I really want you to study is called Behaviour Mapping Bootcamp. This is the signature or the trademark system that I use to teach climate action design in a way that is going to really get people to make measurable change for whatever type of action or behaviour that you want them to take. It's only $25 to sign up. You sign up on Patreon. You can just sign up once. Do the few hours of the course and then you can unsubscribe. No worries. I just really want to get this process out there because I see people making so many mistakes when it comes to psychology and marketing and behavior design. I've been in this game for over 20 years now and I see people making the same mistakes that I made 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Even five years ago, even just three years ago, I see myself as having to come so far from where I was when I actually published the book, How to Save the World. And I want you to go through this process. It's a 10 step process. The backbone of it is making measurable change. And we go through an entire behavior mapping, UI, UX inspired story mapping process. It has all of the behavior and action design techniques, all of the gamification techniques. It is all based around environmental data, which makes it quite a different process to what you will find in any other generalist behavior or UI UX design type of training. It's called Gamify the Planet, if you do it thoroughly and properly and really give it your attention, I promise you it will change your life and your work the way that learning this process has for me. The link to subscribe is in the show notes, or you can just go straight to patreon.com forward slash Patrick, and I'll send you a link to the members page and the courses. And there's a whole lot of other bonuses and weekly features and things that go on there. You can see it all on the page. If you loved this episode, please share it around the internet. Send me a DM on Instagram or LinkedIn. I always love to hear from you. And share this episode as a story on Instagram. And share it with your professional sustainability friends and networks. This stuff is essential learning for us. We cannot save the world unless we get really good at action and behavior design and gamification design. It is an absolutely essential key into the psychological lock to open it, to get people to do all the stuff that we need to do to save the world and to actually just make saving the world really fun. I truly, truly believe that sustainability and climate action and saving the world is actually really fun, that it actually is the greatest game we've ever played, and we should use all these tools to make it so. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your interest in environmental psychology and behaviour design. If you haven't already, you can leave up to a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and I'd be delighted if you would write something about what you learned from this episode there. And make sure you subscribe and follow and tune in next Monday for episode part two of Gabification Design with Dr. Marcus Brower.